Being a true Christian is a risky proposition. For the most part, the world just doesn't understand. But we should take comfort in the fact that Jesus is our cornerstone, and our cornerstone was a misunderstood outcast as well. Our cornerstone was rejected and put to death because of it. And how powerful is it that our rejected Savior is the one who clearly says we are called to be one flock? Think of what that message means to all of those people the Catholic Church has frequently marginalized. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which gives us the foundation we need to take a risk, reach out, and bring all people together into one single flock. Welcome to the Real Word Podcast for the fourth Sunday of Easter, cycle B of the Roman Catholic Lectionary. I'm Brandon Jubar, and I'll be your guide as we walk through the readings for this week. It's an important process because we believe the scriptures are the inspired Word of God. But to really be nourished by the Word, we need to break it open and look a little deeper. We need to let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Now, the messages I get from these scriptures might feel right to you, but you also might find that the Holy Spirit tells you something else, and that is absolutely all right. So if you're ready, let's dive in. As I said, tonight we'll be looking at the readings for the fourth Sunday of Easter, cycle B. Our first reading is from the Acts of the Apostles. It's chapter 4, verses 8 through 12. Our second reading is from a letter written by the same community believed to have written the Gospel of John, and that's 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And our Gospel reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 11 through 18. So just a couple of things to note. First, we only have readings from the New Testament, also known as the Christian Scripture. As I've said before, the reason we do this is actually pretty logical. During the rest of the year, we're looking to the resurrection. So even during Advent, we're anticipating the coming of the Messiah, which then leads to the resurrection. However, during the Easter season, we're looking forward. We're looking from the event of the resurrection and then looking at how it continues even today. So tonight, we'll see that Peter gets fired up, John isn't sure what to expect, and Jesus isn't flocking around. So, sorry, I couldn't resist that last one. Okay, let's, let's start by going through the readings, and then we can talk about the messages we find. As I said, our first reading is from the Acts of the Apostles. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel. It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Our second reading is from the first letter of John. Beloved, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. 
And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And our Gospel reading is from John. I am the Good Shepherd. The Good Shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice, and there shall be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my Father. All right, so let's take a first glance at these readings, and we'll ask ourselves, uh, what do they mean? What does it mean? What messages and meanings can we find if we dig around a little bit? So from our first reading from Acts of the Apostles, the reading actually begins kind of in the middle of the story. What we didn't hear was the beginning when Peter healed a crippled man in the name of Jesus. So this kindness is why he's been called before the Jewish rulers and elders. They're questioning him. They're calling him to account for what has happened. So you might ask yourself, well, why are these religious stiffs treating the miracle of healing like some sort of crime? I think the clues are there in Peter's words when he talks about Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified. First, he's openly referring to Jesus of Nazareth as Christ. So Christ comes from the Greek word Christos, which means anointed one. And in the Greek versions of the scriptures, Christos was used to translate the Hebrew Messiah, which means the one who's anointed. So Peter and his wild bunch have been going around preaching and healing in the name of Jesus, whom they're claiming is the long-awaited Messiah. But guess what? The, the Jewish rulers and elders, well, they don't buy it. They don't believe any of it, and they, they see these disciples of the now-dead Jesus of Nazareth as a bunch of fringe fanatics. So when Peter goes on to say that God has raised Jesus from the dead— well, we don't bat an eye because we're believers. But imagine how crazy it sounded to the Jewish elders. So, I mean, although his followers called him rabbi or teacher, Jesus wasn't part of the Jewish religious establishment. He was basically an outsider as far as that crowd was concerned, which is also probably why you know his continued popularity was so threatening to them. 
Peter makes it difficult for them to just brush off Jesus. And he does that by making a reference that would have been well known to them. Now, I don't read the Psalms for these webinars, but if I had, we would have heard the reference Peter was making. Because in Psalm 118, which we hear this weekend or this past weekend at Mass, in verses 21 and 22, it says, I thank you for you answered me. You have been my Savior. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Frankly, I think it was very clever of Peter to make that reference. So it's, it's likely the Jewish rulers and elders were looking for a way to cast out, to reject these followers of Jesus. But by referencing Psalm 118, Peter has basically created a scenario where rejection by these rulers and elders actually makes the case for Jesus as Christ. And it makes it all that much stronger because they'd be doing what Scripture said would be done. So that's probably why Peter is able to so confidently proclaim at the very end of this, of this short reading, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. But the main message I got from this reading from Acts is that Jesus is our cornerstone. Like the Jewish rulers and elders, far too many Catholics today get caught up in trying to maintain the written rules at all costs. But when they do that, they lose sight of what's most important, which is living as Jesus commanded us to live. Our church, our, our religion, our faith is selfish and empty unless our thoughts, words, and actions reinforce the fact that Jesus is our cornerstone. Our second reading was from the first letter of St. John. And this, it's an inter interesting little reading because it, it seems sort of ironic. Uh, it starts out with the evangelist saying that the Father has lavished great love on us because we are called children of God. I mean, it sounds awesome, right? But then he goes on to mention that ah, the world doesn't know us because, well, the world didn't know Jesus. Oh, and, and by the way, we're, we're not really sure what it will mean now that we're children of God. But when Christ comes again, it's going to be great. <laughs> so, in other words, this is fantastic. No one else knows it. And we're not exactly sure what it is, but we're pretty confident it's a good thing. <laughs> now, our perspective today is significantly different because we have the benefit of visibility into all of the scriptures. We also have a couple thousand years of theological thought and exploration to call upon. So to, to use a tired analogy, we can see the trees and the entire forest, and we can see how everything fits together because of our perspective here 2,000 years later. For example, we have a much better understanding now of what it means to be children of God. We know that in this letter, this reading today, the evangelist was actually spot on. We're, we're called to be like Christ. We're called to live our lives according to his commands. And if, if you remember in, in Matthew's gospel, um, when the scholar of the law questioned Jesus, that's not in the gospel tonight, but it's a very popular one, right? He says, teacher, what commandment in the law is the greatest? 
It was supposed to be a trick question, but Jesus replied with what we now know are the two greatest commandments. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the greatest and the first commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Jesus concluded by saying in Matthew's gospel there, the whole law and the prophets depend on these two commandments. So we know all of this today. But the people John was writing to, well, they may not have been taught all of that yet. They knew they were being called to do something. They weren't exactly sure what, but they were still excited and and ready to go. What they did know was that they were now children of God. And when Christ comes again, they will see him as he is. But in the meantime, the meantime, this is what you can't miss, the world won't necessarily understand. And that seems to pose a significant risk. Perhaps the implied suggestion here is that if we live as children of God, if, if we are the hands and feet of Christ in the world, then maybe, maybe we can change that a bit. Maybe if we're like Christ, then those around us can come to know him through us. So, wow, layers and layers of meaning, I guess, in this short little reading. But the main message that I got from our second reading is that being a Christian is not without risk. Life can be difficult when the world doesn't understand you, but living like Jesus and following his commands, it promises a remarkable future. It's not all sunshine and rainbows in the meantime, because being a Christian is not without risk. Finally, our gospel reading is from the Gospel of John. And this is one that you should all be very familiar with. I've been hearing about Jesus as the Good Shepherd for as long as I can remember. Now, when you're seven years old, it doesn't bother you to be equated with sheep. Uh, But there are plenty of older teens and adults who use the analogy as a negative one. Um, In fact, if you watch many videos online, then you may have seen people saying, you shouldn't just go along willingly like sheep. So when someone seems to just go along with something they don't truly understand, when, when they haven't stood up for themselves and made their own choice, then they're classified as sheeple. So this gospel reading about Jesus as the good shepherd, well, it, so it actually reminds me of a, a video my son and I watched a few months ago. And at one point, this middle-aged man told the reporter that the people he opposed were clueless sheeple. They didn't know anything about the issue, so they were just listening to their leaders, going along blindly without looking at the facts themselves and making up their minds. They were, quote, going along like sheep. And the reporter clarified that the man had not read the transcript in question either. The guy said, well, no, I I haven't actually read it, but people I trust have read it. And the reporter asked again, but you think it's important for everyone to read it for themselves and not just believe what they're being told. They need to stop being sheeple. And the man said, exactly. It was frankly the most bizarre thing because he was doing exactly what he was accusing others of doing. And he appeared completely blind to the hypocrisy of his condemnation of others. It does raise an interesting question about 
the parable of the Good Shepherd and the analogy of us, his followers, as sheep. It's a discussion I've had with youth group teens over the years as, as well, because frankly, headstrong teenagers don't like to be called sheep. And I don't know anyone who would appreciate being categorized as mindless sheeple anyways, but here's the thing. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm the good shepherd and you're a bunch of stupid sheep. The significance of the analogy was probably apparent to his audience at the time. Sheep might not know everything and have all the answers, but they do know the sound of their shepherd's voice and will only follow their shepherd. There are lots of voices calling us every day, and unlike the sheep, we seem to have a hard time discerning the true voices from the merely persuasive ones. Unlike sheep, we frequently, frequently follow the wrong shepherd and then confidently point the finger at other people following other voices and say, look at those sheeple blindly following and not thinking for themselves. We need to listen for the voice of the good shepherd and follow where Christ calls. We need to stop following shepherds who simply say what we want to hear because we end up completely missing the, well, the often challenging voice of Christ. In the reading, Jesus also points out that he is not like the hired hand who will run from danger and abandon the sheep. He will lay down his life for the sheep. And not just the sheep in his pen, his current followers, but for all the other sheep too. The ones who still need to be welcomed into the one flock. And he isn't just ready to welcome new sheep into the flock. He's going out to find them and bring them back. Boy, that's an interesting concept. Sounds a lot like evangelization, <laughs> but not the kind of evangelization, evangelization where you start by telling people how horrible they are and why they're going to burn in hell. Not the kind of evangelization where you give them the rule book, the catechism, and show them all of the barriers to entry into our exclusive club. The good shepherd going out to find all of the sheep and bring them back to the one flock. That sounds a lot more loving than the way evangelization is often done today. So there were a few interesting things, but the main message I got from our gospel reading today is that we are called to be one flock. People focus so much on the image of the good shepherd that they overlook these words of Jesus. There shall be one flock and one shepherd. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all. And when we do things to cast others out, to condemn them or push them away, we're pushing an agenda that's in direct opposition from what Jesus told us to do. We aren't called to create some exclusionary religious club. We are called to be one flock. All right, let's sum up what we've talked about so far. In our first reading from Acts of the Apostles, the main message I came away with was, Jesus is our cornerstone. In our second reading from the first letter of St. John, the main message I got was, being a Christian is not without risk. And finally, the main message I got from our gospel reading was that we are called to be one flock. So I just love it when the messages from the three readings seem to work so well together. Being a Christian, 
a true Christian trying hard to love God and love one another is a risky proposition. For the most part, the world just doesn't understand. In fact, sometimes we have a hard time understanding. But we should take comfort in the fact that Jesus is our cornerstone, and our cornerstone was a misunderstood outcast as well. Our cornerstone was rejected and put to death because of it. And how powerful is it that our rejected Savior is the one who clearly says we are called to be one flock? Think of what that message means to all of those people the Catholic Church has frequently marginalized. Think of what that means for people who have divorced but haven't been granted an annulment. Think of what it means for LGBTQ folks. Think of what it means for women who feel called to ordained ministry but continue to be denied. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, which gives us the foundation we need to take a risk, reach out, and bring all people together into one single flock. So let's take a step back and we'll take a second glance at these readings overall and ask ourselves if our path has become clearer. To help with this, I'd like to ask two questions. So what? <laughs> and now what? Okay, so what? Why should we care about any of this? Well, well, you shouldn't care about this at all if you believe the Catholic Church should be an exclusive club, that the Eucharist should be a private meal and not an open banquet. But if you're not a self-righteous a-hole, then I've already told you why this is important. The Catholic Church judges and condemns far too many people, but we are extremely selective in how we do it. We have bishops who will express harsh condemnation for a president who supports equality for LGBTQ people. Those same bishops were silent when a different president separated thousands of children from their families at the border and pushed through as many executions as possible before the end of his term. But even at the local level, there are people who have divorced but haven't been granted an annulment, and their pastor won't allow them to receive the Eucharist. At Catholic parishes and schools across the country, LGBTQ folks continue to be fired for loving someone enough to enter into a civil union with them. Trans students have been barred from some Catholic schools, and some dioceses still support conversion therapy to, quote, cure people from the affliction of same-sex attraction. And what about women who feel called to ordained ministry, but are told by a bunch of old men that they're just misunderstanding their calling? And in case you think these are just the rantings of a liberal activist, they're not. There are lots of priests, bishops, and theologians around the world who are pointing out the same thing and asking these same questions. <laughs> this is, it's not just me. Okay, and the last question I try to answer is, now what? All right, well, what are we supposed to do? Where do we go from here? Well, I think one of the biggest obstacles to positive change in the church is that most of us are simply blissfully unaware of what's going on. If an exclusionary position, policy, or practice doesn't directly impact us or someone we love, then we tend to be kind of oblivious to it. 
but we can't help correct the problem if we don't even recognize it. So with that in mind, here's your real challenge for the week. Actively look for people the church is excluding. Trust me, it's happening all around us. But the first step is to open our eyes, recognize where the church is marginalizing people, and acknowledge that what's happening is not what Christ is calling us to do. Our parish priests and pastors are called to act on behalf of the Good Shepherd. So if they're barricading the gate instead of going out and actively welcoming those who have been rejected, then it's up to us to recognize it as a problem. And only then can we start talking about possible solutions. Well, before I wrap things up, I'd like to leave you with one more quote from Scripture. As we look around for those who have been rejected and marginalized, try to remember what St. Paul wrote to the Galatians. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We need to stop thinking of people and seeing people as the other, as something different, and recognize that we are called to be part of one flock. We are called to be one in Christ Jesus. All right, we have come to the end of our time here together. Thanks for joining me this evening. I'll be back again next week, but in the meantime, I do encourage you to use this as a starting point. Spend some time with the Bible on your own, looking at the readings we discussed tonight, or just find something completely different. Read through it a couple times, think about it, pray about it. Open up not only your mind, but your heart. Break open the Word and then listen to what the Holy Spirit says to you. The Real Word Podcast is brought to you by The Real Values Project, Real Youth Ministry, and The Real Values Framework. Real stands for respect, engage, accept, and lead. For more information on The Real Values, please visit keepingitreal.club. And finally, the Bible readings used for this podcast are from the Holy Bible, New International Version, copyright 1973, 1978, 1984, in 2011 by Biblica Inc. Used by permission, all rights reserved worldwide.